Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. Oh, it's good to have Mac back over there counting us down. Here we go. It's a hot one. We've got a. It's an interesting subject that we're going to talk about. And uh, let me go, let me kind of look across and set the stage for everybody because this is an old, different crew. Totally different. Dudley, you're, you're here. I'm here. Yeah, Mac's over here counting us down. Richie, producer Richie's in his usual spot, but sitting in for Lanny is Vandy Stubbs. <laughs> And uh, and and Vandy, uh, this he was really he did not we had to kind of push him in here. And Vandy is yeah, hard right. to push anywhere. That's right. And uh, but we've got Vandy in here. One of the licensing projects you've been working on is so exciting. These Uncle Ray's chips are right here on the table. Yeah. Yep. And uh, that that is really cool. So how many different chips are there? Uh, there's three flavors uh, that will be out probably in another month or so. Uh, Blaze cheddar jalapeno. Obsession All Dressed and Bottomland Barbecue. Bottomland Barbecue. Yeah, we'll post a picture of these things. They look, they look well. They are delicious. We've all tried them. Yeah, they sent some samples and uh, they keep disappearing. Yeah, it's yeah. Weird. Well, into Dudley's office. As a I was fact, so. on that keto diet, and then we started having to test all these chips and everything, and it's just gone south. So at the other end of the table, we are so excited, excited, ready. The horns, please, Richard. We have Ronnie Cuss Strickland. Who, who is sitting? Because this subject we're going to talk about snakes. It's is his one favorite of, is, subject. <laughs> <laughs> well, of, he's of our, all things to get invited for. <laughs> it's a big deal to get invited down here. And Toxie sent me a text. He's tied up. And he said, "Man, they're going to be talking about snakes." I'm like, why are you texting me? <laughs> he did his podcast last week was about how much he hates snakes. Uh, there was one good story about. How they were hunting, and his and his buddies had killed a snake that day, and he was already keyed up about it. And he had bought this really nice, fancy sleeping bag, and one of the buddies put some hot dogs in the bag when he was asleep, and then he like <laughs> rolled over on it. And anyway, you, you know the rest rough, rough of the story. I, I traveled with back in the day. Yeah. Did they have a knot on their head at the end of the night? Oh, but they, you know, it wasn't funny. It was funny to them. I couldn't get mad at them because they was, they were laughing so much. I couldn't get anybody's attention. But you know, I stayed for like four months. It was a Browning down sleeping bag. This was way back in the day. We were out west camping. Yeah. And I, and, you know, I, I guess I rolled over on one of those things, and I was. I was airborne and up immediately and out of the bag. And when I looked back at it, it was just sprawled out like a tarp. I ripped the zipper and all. 
the, the problem with snakes, when you're scared of snakes, everybody wants to throw a rubber hose on you. you know? Yeah. I kind of broke some of that up, but it's like, <laughs> and it's in your DNA. It ain't like. It, it's like my phobia it. of flying. I, I know the statistics are, they're safer than driving. Yeah. But uh, you nearly have to put me under to get me to get on a plane. Yeah. And it, it's True, just, I've that's the way it, it is. Yeah. Why are we so scared of snakes? Yeah, Lauren sent me a video of that. And it's, you know, and it goes back to the Bible. There's, there's a million reasons because it's, I don't think it's got anything to do with me. I think you're born with it. You know, and look, I've been outside my whole life. I don't, I don't mind spiders, UFO, Bigfoot, ghosts, none of that. I don't care about any of that. But a snake, I, I just scream like a three-year-old girl. I, yeah. It's crazy. It's just in you. I don't, uh, I've got that problem with roaches in my house. Like, I can see one out in the woods. I don't think twice about it. But about a month ago, I was laying in my bed staring at my phone, and I look up, and there's a roach two feet from my face on my bed. Mm. And uh, I was on top of my dresser drawers, and my wife was just kind of laying there laughing, and she went and got it with a shoe or something. But, you know, <laughs> okay. Sometimes you just can't help your phobias. It's just natural. Ain't nothing I can do about it. I've tried. Well, look, so to this, today we're going to talk. We've got uh, – uh, we're going to – in just a mo- moment, we're going to have Jim Lipes uh, on, and he's going to tell us about an experience he had in Mississippi here with a water moccasin. And we've also got a guy named Ian – and I'm going to mess up his last name, but he's a border check, but he's from the Southwest Florida Conservancy. He's a biologist, and he's a part of removing these invasive Burmese pythons. And it's a pretty interesting story. But before we go there, last week we mentioned when we were talking about the pig toxicants uh, that our Riley from our warehouse had gotten into a situation with a bunch of wild pigs with a Springfield AR rifle, and uh, 17 shots rang out, and then with the end of the day, there were four pigs laying there. And I think, was there three or four, or was there four, and you found another one? It was three, and we found another one the next day. That made four. So so we posted this video. It's with a thermal scope, Ronnie. I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but. I did. But he, he, you know, who hasn't gotten a little excited when you got there? Oh, my gosh. But so the next day, I noticed Riley, if he would pull his hat up a little bit, has got a scope scar on his forehead. (laughs) I didn't notice that. So, Riley, I just want to ask you what. Two questions. What's going through, what went through your mind when you snuck up on those pigs, and how did you get the scope scar? Well, it wasn't at the same time. That was like... But, but hang on. Richie, we need to properly introduce... This is Riley Thompson. He lives here in West Point, works in our warehouse. He's a heck of a worker. We really appreciate it, Riley. But can we get the horns for him? That's right. Well, I don't know. I was When I did the scar on my head, that's when I was... That was this past weekend. I was just in a funny position when I shot, and I don't know. I wasn't holding it. You know, every, I'm sure everybody's done it at least once. It's the first time I've ever done it. I ain't, don't plan on doing that it. That happened to me my first time. Yeah, it don't feel sure. good for sure. Well, what about the when you walked up on all of what happened? Oh, I was see, I was on the roof of a house, right? And if the house had like two eaves sticking out on it, well, I was on the opposite side. Doesn't everybody hunt pigs off the top of the house? <laughs> <laughs> the guy, hey, the guy on the place, he called me. He said, "Take a ladder, get on the roof of the house, and you'll see some pigs." So that's what I did, but luckily I heard them because I didn't even hear them come up. I see I didn't see them come up. So when I got, went over there and I stood up, I mean, it was, they was right there. I was standing up when I shot. I mean, it was just, I just started shooting. And then that, that was that tree in the way that didn't yeah, help. Yeah, that didn't help at all. But that but, made for a good video. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I had fun. 
Like, who's going to quit shooting, you know? Well, so you've got another spot baited up. You've got an, uh, I'm seeing pictures of a bunch of pigs. I do a, a Spartan camera out there, and I've seen, well, I ain't going to say where it's at, but it's in a good spot. Got a bunch of pigs. Well, but you like that AT and scope, don't you? I do. I really do. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty awesome. In daytime or nighttime, it works. So it's pretty cool. Hey, I, <laughs> I got two words. If you want to get rid of pigs, Navy Seals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah they work. We, we've had them in up here a few times. The last time they came up, and they did their night excursion, and the next day there was buzzards coming down here from Wisconsin. <laughs> it was impressive, to say the least. Well, yeah. the first – I don't know if you remember, the first year they came down here, we couldn't find a pig to save our life. Yep. And we're overrun with them everywhere. And we went – I mean, I don't know how many thousands of acres we covered with them, but we could not find a pig until – Smart one, pigs. One of the last days. They, so, don't, they don't miss. Yeah. They're smart. All right, Riley. Well, thank you for coming in here and telling that little bit of story. Yeah. yeah. All right, Rich. While we're while we're just kind of switching up, uh, why don't you try to get Mister uh, Jim Lipe on the phone, and then I'm gonna ask these guys. Have y'all wa- are y'all watching the weather? It's like uh, unbelievable heat wave in Oklahoma, Kansas, out there. It's hot. I don't remember it being that hot for a while. Hot. Yeah. All right. We got. Have, have we got Jim on the phone? Yeah. Hey, Jim, look, let me do a proper introduction. This is Bobby. We've got Dudley Phelps, Vandy Stubbs. We've got Ronnie Cuz, Strickland. And uh, and so we are so happy to have you. And you are Mr. Jim Lipe, and you're a retired wildlife biology with, biologist with the state of Mississippi. And I think you do some wildlife consulting right now as well, right? That's correct. Um, Jim, I have a story, and uh, when I was – in college back in the 90s, going to Delta State, I used to work for a man named Jim Lipe. And we would ride around farmland and duck camps and uh, blow up beaver dams all summer long. And uh, was that your dad? That was my father. Okay. Uh, he passed away back in uh, 2015. Okay. At uh, 90s. And, uh, but he worked until he was eight. He was just an exceptional human. And he taught me so much. I, w- I was actually in photography school over at Delta state and, uh, I wanted to document him and that's what I did. I took photos of him all summer and it was part of my thesis. Um, I've got some really cool photos of your dad and some really cool photos of blowing stuff up. So, um, I would love it. We may, uh, I would love it if you could share some of those with me. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely will. Let's, let's definitely stay in touch. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, look, Jim, we appreciate you joining us and you've got a snake story. We're going to hear that. I'm going to save that for the end of the podcast, but we wanted you to join us. And look, feel free to jump in here and ask questions because we've got a guest. And I think is is uh, is Bart on? Okay, all right. So we've got a guest. I'm going to introduce him in just a second. But we want to make sure you, as a biologist, that you ask any questions you want to ask. Okay. Sure will. Okay, that sounds good. All right. So also on the line, we've got a gentleman named Ian. And Ian, I hope I don't mess up your last name, but it's Bartacek. Is that right? That's close enough. Okay. Yeah, and Ian is with the Conservancy of Southwest Florida, and it's my understanding you've been a wildlife biologist for a long time, maybe over 20 years, working in that part of the world trying to protect the Everglades. And we just want to what a great uh, what a great thing you're doing down there. That's a that's one of the last 
wildest places in the southeast part of the United States. It's such a beautiful part of the world, and and we we just we're, we're so thankful you're down there doing that. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I appreciate that. Well, as you mentioned, been a wildlife biologist here for 20 years at the Conservancy, and uh, 12 years ago, if you told me we'd be tracking one of the largest snakes on the planet, I wouldn't have believed you for a minute. And uh, trying to just have a flashback of where we've been during that time. My crew has since removed 26,000 pounds of python from, from the edge of town here in southwest Florida. You really can't make this stuff up. <laughs> wow. Wow. That, that, I was not expecting that. So the way I've, I kind of found you, Ian, and, uh, and, and Ian, you're the first person I've ever known named Ian. I, I, it, I know tons of the Ian's. I do too. Is that right? What's well, I I don't know what the odds are, but we got two of us working on this one Python project. Got another biologist here, Ian Easterling. So it gets a little confusing. We use last names here. And then last year we took a reporter out in the field that had the same name. And that got real confusing real quick. So you've got to forgive Bobby. He was raised in He's a bubble really in, in Montgomery, really Alabama. Sheltered. So yeah, yeah. Home, uh, homeschooled most of his life. Yeah, yeah he so, didn't really know a whole lot about it. All good, all good. So Ian, these, uh, you know, we've kind of been watching this for a number of years. And at one time, I thought Auburn University was helping you guys and you'd come up with some dogs that might could smell these snakes and whatnot. But it. I don't guess I realize just what a problem these snakes are for you guys down there. Y'all are finding them now, eating people's pets and eating white-tailed deer. Am I right about that? Well, uh, to some degree, yes. And I don't know how much time you're going to give me, so I want to focus on that uh, wildlife impact um, that we're seeing there. And uh, the, the big old snake we pulled out this last season that topped out at 215 pounds, um, when we did, when we opened her up, she had deer hoof cores inside and we figured as much because we've seen this many many times and every time we bring in a python in our labs over 100 pounds um, there's a good chance it's got white-tailed deer inside and then the one we did yesterday that was 130 pounds had bobcat claws inside and the moral of the story is don't underestimate this burmese python and um they've they've documented a whole number of species inside this animal. It's a generalist apex predator, and they are capable. I mean, I'm also this every season we see something new that we hadn't seen before. And um, well, we now know that pythons can get over 200 pounds in the wild here in Southwest Florida. But what might even be a little more concerning is somebody brought me in a python that had been run over by a bush hog, and it was a 10 pound python and it had a six-pound white-tailed deer fawn inside. Now, I'm here to tell you, you just, you just can't make this stuff up. Whoa. Whoa. Wow. So, Ian, there, along with me, I, I failed to introduce We got Dudley Phelps, when Vandy Stubbs, and then Ronnie Cuz Strickland at the end of the table. And there may not be anybody more scared of snakes huh? uh, than, than Ronnie Strickland. So, if we were lucky to get him to come in here. He's looking under the table the whole, before, before he well, sat down. Hey, Ron, Ronnie, I'm here to tell you, we're more afraid of driving around town here during tourist season than we are dealing with any snake here. And that's hands down the truth. And uh, you get bound behind the wheel here in southwest Florida in season and it's you taking your life in your hand. <laughs> hey, I agree. We were talking about phobias and I, sometimes I just don't think you can have any control over it. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I was telling Bobby and Dudley, I'm, I'm fine with snake uh, 
spiders and UFO, all that stuff. None of that bothers <laughs> me. But a snake is in the, is a, is just a reflex. Yeah, it's, it's just an irrational thing. You can't get out of your mind. I was I was telling Cuz I have a problem with airplanes, and I know they're safer than driving. But uh, some people, it's just hard to shake those those phobias. But no, I'm I'm with you, and I I, I definitely have appreciation for that. Uh, if somebody doesn't come into our lab door and won't cross the threshold, I know that that's phobia <laughs> level. But if there's just a fear factor, a bit. I've seen a, a good amount of times on my project where someone will kind of, they'll be freaked out, but then they'll come a little bit closer, a little bit closer, and then they'll touch that snake. And I can actually see it change in their mind. It's a pretty cool thing. So I don't go down that rabbit hole, but you know, snakes, snakes in their native state, man, it's a tough sell for most people, but they, they've got a big service in the environment, snakes that are supposed to be here. But in Florida, we got over 40 native species and they're, they're part of the equation and they do their job, keep the balance. But, this one's out of the bag. This is one of the largest snake species on the planet. And, uh, yeah, we've seen this season. They can top up at 215 pounds, and I'll bet you there's a bigger one out there we'll hear about sooner or later. So, Ian, let me let me start. I also want to say there's another gentleman on the phone listening that's a retired wildlife biologist from the state of here, Mississippi. His name's Jim Leip. He's also listening. So he may ask a question. But I'm going to sure. – I want to – throw out this first question and and, uh, and get this thing started. And, look, we're not in any kind of rush. I know you may have to get off, but uh, when you – No, you, I, I got all the time you need as long as we don't get down too many rabbit holes. Uh, okay, well, to, yeah, well, we'll try we'll try not to do that. But, <laughs> but look, can you explain how y'all are catching these things? Because, I, you know, I watched a video, and we, you know, we want to we learn, we wanna, and we also want to learn how we might could help you and what you guys are doing, but it sounds like it's very scientific. Um, well, but let me just kind of bring you up to uh, how we evolved to where we are here. So um, we're in southwestern Florida. We're kind of western Everglades. We're more of a, a forested, mixed hardwood system, uplands, wetlands, a bit different from the eastern glades, river grass, you know, marshlands and tree islands and such. But you know, 10 years ago, we radio tagged some of our first pythons and stuck close to them, the whole tracking effort um, with radio telemetry. And we learned about them. And then, you know, it's not rocket science, but in the breeding season, the males are going to get with the girl. The boys are going to get with the girls. So we found out early on, we found our first hundred pounder that way. We thought that was a big snake by staying hot on the tail of a python named Elvis, python number one. Well, uh, I've tracked. 90 some odd adults since then and we've got a cast of characters working for us right now i got 40 pythons working for us so you mentioned auburn's program with the detector dogs and whatnot or alluded to it we're we've got detector snakes over here and so some best way to find a python is use one in the breeding season off grid and that's where we go we go where the snakes go we follow them through some crazy habitat terrain I got encyclopedia stories each season that just add up um, over time. Like I said, you just can't make this stuff up. And that's a bit different from the other hunting technique that's usually roads and levees. And um, generally at night, for those, there's people out there now cruising the road edges and they're finding um, snake and removing them. But we have a targeted approach for the, the egg laying females. This is, uh, if you're not familiar with the Burmese python constrictor snake, the females will lay eggs and they will guard them for a couple months out of the year. We try to find them 
and remove them before they get a chance to do that. So that's by using these male scout snakes that we call them. And, you know, the really way to think about it is if we're looking for the needles in the haystack and these big girls are the needles, the males are a magnet and they're helping us get close to them and increase our detection. And we've got pretty good at what we're doing over the past years. That's a pretty good concept. Ian, how far south of Lake Okeechobee do you work? Because I do a lot of turkey hunting down there. <laughs> south, way yeah, south uh, of Lake Okeechobee, you know, way past Cooleston and all that. Are, are you ever up in that area? Or are you staying down there around Miami? Or Well, we're on the southwest. We're outside of Naples or based in Naples. And my study area is just right on the ed edge of town here. So we're not deep in the glades. But um, anytime you guys are down this way, come and take a visit. We uh, we work real well with the local sportsmen, gladesmen, um, kind of telling us, we're telling them what we're seeing and kind of picking their brains of uh, what they see out there. And, you know, back to the white-tailed deer, um, I think it's starting to become more known that the southern white-tailed deer population is dropping, it's crashing. There's probably a lot of different reasons for that. Um, you get a lot of different opinions on the matter. Um, and I'd say it's probably a multiple choice question all the above as to why, but what we're trying to do is share these observations we're seeing from our lab as to what these pythons are eating and the impact that they're having. And uh, it's just adding up. I was sold in 2015, to be honest with you, day in the life on the project where we were tracking a very small female python. We used to track males and females earlier. We mostly track the males now. And this was a 31 and a half pound python sounds big is not that's the smallest size female we ever tracked and long story short she didn't breed that year and very quickly in april she went to go feed see the breeding or feeding and um one week to the next when i saw the snake i couldn't believe it it was so big and had a, a prey item inside well uh she was up to no good so we took her out of the project brought her back to the lab and she spit up a 35 pound white-tailed deer fawn so that's, let me just repeat, that's a 31 and a half pound snake that was going to digest a 35, probably even heavier because it was partly digested. So when, you know, when we did the math on that and looked at the numbers, that was the largest documented prey size to python size ratio on the planet for Burmese pythons and occurred, you know, 15 miles from my lab over here down in Southwest Florida. So tell me how a snake catches a fawn or, or a deer for that matter. Well, um, if you look at their skeleton, those teeth are recurved. And so this is how you catch prey being limbless, limbless. And you got to give them to that. They got no arms or legs and how are you going to catch it? So they have these kind of recurved teeth and, uh, you know, they're ambush predators. Although we tend to, I tend to think of them now as more active foragers ambush than just sit and wait in one spot. I really think they get dialed into an area and they're, you know, they're, they're hunters. They're good at what they do. They don't sit and wait all the time. They, I feel like they, they move around and lock onto an area or say where the deer are bedding down and then set up shop there. I think we've seen this enough to get in their head and that's what they're up to. Um, then it's, you know, they got thermal receptors. So they're probably seen in the infrared there and uh, uh, reach out and strike and those recurved teeth hold on. And then they throw a coil and that constriction just makes really quick work. And it's like a cardiac arrest and that animal goes down. And then I haven't seen them real-time predate 
a something like the size of a white-tailed deer. But I can tell you as a biologist, I'd probably have PTSD if I saw that um, because it'd be so intense to see them swallow something that large. Um, you kind of have to see it to believe it or uh, it doesn't really register until like I, I mentioned from that one that I saw in 2015 when it uh, spit up that prey item of just how big an animal that they can swallow with those lower jaws that can unhinge. And um, it's just an impressive creature all the way around. So, Ian, tell us how you guys do this. It's, uh, my understanding you use a scout snake that helps lead you to these larger females. Then you and your crew are walking in there. Can you walk us through what's going on in your mind? Because you've got to just be looking everywhere for these things. And when you walk up, is there going to be more than one typically? Right. So, um, yeah, I'll walk you through it. And um, we're, we, we've had, this is, this is in our first rodeo with this season. We've got a lot under our belt. So we're, we're very hunter minded with this animal. We kind of know how to read our animals, read the terrains and um, kind of get in their mind is so meaning when one of our snakes is somewhere and behave in a certain way, we, we pretty got got a pretty good sense on what that means. So for this, this big, girl that got pulled out this season um might as well just been another large snake capture in the middle of a breeding season uh thick terrain middle of nowhere your scout snakes kind of calling if you will from that location for quite a while so there's consistency they they stay there and it's like well maybe he's found us something so um usually the second visit in you're uh if he's got something we'll probably find it so this one was just like that he was visited once kind of stuck to the same area went back a week he was still lurking made us think like he probably is on to a girl and um the crew hacked out pretty thick viney terrain full of invasive vegetation so something that you can't really see a to b through there very easy and then we get proximity so if you don't know wildlife telemetry got it our snakes have an internal transmitter and you need a uh, radio receiver and uh, an antenna that's directional and then when you're facing where your animal is the beeps are going to be louder through the receiver and they're going to be faint when you're pointing away from it so it's kind of a one-sided game of hide and seek and a hot and cold if you will and that gets us in closer so those beeps are getting louder and so I, it's creepy cool when you're kind of getting pulled into uh, a snake or where there could be a pile of snakes everybody gets you know on their a game real quick and um for this specific capture just team looked down next to our boy dion and uh there's a pretty massive snake sitting there and so the main thing is to go for the girl some there can be others nearby but we're always looking for where the bigger one is generally so that snake was a two-handed grab ian easterling jumped on that one and so he's got two hands around the neck speed you want to be quick with these before they know something's after them and um got two hands around it and my intern kyle was going for the tail and the snake kind of had another idea they don't really have a long tail they look like they're all tail but it's short and stubby so kind of balled it up and uh, took a swipe at kyle's face with her tail and he dodged it and uh uh ian easterling turned to look and he was kind of holding on to the front end and she you know, she swiped him in the side of the face and kind of gave him a punch. Um, and then a little bit of uh, wrestling, wrangling just to subdue the animal. And they kind of, they go down pretty quick uh, as reptiles. Um, it's always amazes me, an apex predator 
over a uh, hundred plus pounds or in this one, 200 pounds that, you know, you and your buddy can just, um, take them down pretty quick and, uh, on to the next one. So, um, my team was pretty dialed in and, uh, you know, I'd be lying, you know, you need to reprogram your brain if you're going to jump on a, on a giant snake. Uh, I remember my first capture and if we had a video of that, it'd probably be the most embarrassing thing ever, but, um, <laughs> fast forward and yeah, this is just another, another big old Python that the crew got. And then, um, I don't know why it took us so long to realize we should tape up their mouth after, but now we do that. Uh, it, it limits any kind of collateral strikes they could give you. Yeah. That's and then, the first thing I would have thought of. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're, we're slow on the uptake on that one for whatever reason, slow movements over time. But then, um, once it was tired out and we were tired out, then it's the hard part is how you getting that thing back to your field truck. Um, so I'll cut a trail and we'll usually put it over, uh, Ian Easterling's shoulder you know, when he put his resume in, uh, one of his skill sets he put was lifting and reaching. And we kind of laughed at that lift and reach and wow, you'll go far. But, um, I'll tell you what, on this Python project, dragging, uh, 26,000 pounds of snake through the woods, that really pays forward. And so we put that thing on his shoulder and, uh, he marched forward, got her back to the truck. And when we brought that snake to the lab, put her in the old, the tub and teared it. There was this collective wide-eyed, wow, you know, snake hit 215 pounds on the scale. So that was next level for us. Ian, I know that's, this is kind of a recent thing, and they're spreading out. Is that line going north? And how? what's the temperature cutoff where you think they won't go any further than that? And that's where you're going to be? That's, I'm going to be off. way north of that line. 10-4, well – yeah, within reason, this is a subtropical, tropical type species. They're not going to handle the uh, the frost very well, the, the winters very well further north. But I say that, and I, I'll say don't underestimate Burmese pythons, the moral of the story. Um, they've got a couple behaviors. They, they get underground really well and use these armadillo or gopher tortoise burrows. And um, they can kind of wait out a cold snap that way. I do think realistically you know we're dealing with uh, freeze lines and things like that that's going to probably check them quite well however they're very good at moving through the water they you know if i had a map to show you on this one just in the and you know you can't in the, under the theme it can't make this stuff up we had a couple um stone crab captains that you know put their crab pots way out in the gulf of mexico years back um send us some observations and snakes from 15 miles offshore python was coiled up on their buoy for their crab string oh. and um that now disclaimer that was three three four weeks after hurricane irma blew through here so she probably flushed them out from down there at neverglades national park but um just telling you you know water's a highway if they want it to be for these animals and um their behavior of getting underground so the wild population, to my knowledge, is up towards Lake Okeechobee now, and it it's expanding each year. Um, you know, no matter, you know, there's no check on them yet. So all these numbers we're talking about and all the, the effort put to it, it's very much removal. It doesn't seem like there's much control going on, although I'm a bit biased, and I'd say the maps I'm looking at over here and where we put pressure with removing so many of these large females from areas kind of on the edge of town here that some of these scout snakes are having a hard time locking on to the next 
female each season compared to say that snake Dion that I forgot to continue his story. He got us that 215 pounder and then we let him loose. We didn't even mess with him. We just got his girl and took off, but he found us four more big girls that season. So high density, high density area. He was, he was the MVP of the season, the most valuable Python by far. (laughs) He's a a player. You need to hang on to him. Yeah. Are are y'all winning this war? do Do you think? Nope. We're winning some battles, but we're not kidding ourselves. We ain't winning the war. Um, but we're also not sitting on the sidelines neither. And I've seen a lot of comments here and there. You never get after all of them, this and that. Yep. I hear that. But, um, 26,000 pounds of snake over a thousand snakes from the edge of town. That's a good start in the right direction. And, um, you know, all these females that were bagging, um, the average, you know, that forgot to mention that, that, female we had national geographic crew come in the lab and take a peek when we opened her up and in addition to having deer white-tailed deer hoof cores inside she had 122 developing eggs so that's 122 hatchlings that aren't out there now and when you multiply that by the hundreds and hundreds of females we pulled out already is it making a dent well you know we got to see it from my vantage point over here on the maps we look at and it's definitely a start in the right direction but you know, uh, that's why we got to say on this, you got to follow the science on this issue. And um, someone's got to work to come up with some landscape level technique if that's possible. But working here at the Conservancy in Naples, where we're pretty focused on the native wildlife, well, we're we're not waiting 10 years out for someone to come up with some new idea. It's like, hey, if we've got a way to, you know, get some of these big girls out of the equation, we're going to do it. And so each season, this season, the crew, three of us pulled out 4,300 pounds of pythons since November. So November to April, over two tons of snake. And then as mentioned before, 26,000 pounds of python from the edge of town. This, this reminds me so much of our feral pig problem because uh, they, their habitat is places that humans don't really want to go and it's not easy to navigate you know like pigs will disappear into the thickest cover that you know nobody wants to go to and um, correct me if I'm wrong but these things like to live in this marshy grassy I mean that you know when I watch videos of them being caught it it just looks like terrain that your average human isn't going to want to just walk around in all day you know that's correct. And uh, bringing up the, the, you know, the feral hog, you, you know, bring big points just to kind of get us thinking outside the box of just Python is like, yeah, these, uh, these invasive animals and whatever, you know, you're listening in from wherever you're from, you know, down here, if you're not down here in Southwest Florida, you've, you've got some other invasive animal or plant that's causing some damage wherever you might be in your bioregion. And, you know, that infects the integrity of the system. And uh, yeah, feral hog is definitely up the list there. We, we see them all, we see their sign all over the place down here, like anywhere else, it seems. Um, surprisingly, I don't see too much pig from inside a python. I see everything else, and I and they have taken hog before, but maybe they're dialed in or they're just really good at what they do. But over here um, on our coast here, where, you know, the hogs are getting into the sea turtle nest, the endangered sea turtle nest. So we deal with that. We have a 40-year study that they've been looking at loggerhead sea turtles on the beach and uh the they have a usda guy that's um that's taking out the hog that are uh predating so 
yeah, you just you really just can't make this stuff up down here. Uh, do, do these pythons have any natural predators at all, or is it just humans? Ian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. We're one of humans. Yep. We're one of them. We're on to them. But um, uh, I guess the way to think of it is, you know, think of the alligator when they're when. Uh, well, to, to to side of question, do they have any predators and? Um, Alligator is probably a good comparison. When it's a hatchling gator, they're pretty vulnerable, right? Until they reach a certain size and they can turn the tide. So what we've seen, and we're just we're getting ready at the moment to um, do another hatchling study. And you'd say why is because we, we want to get a survival um, uh, estimate of how many of these are actually making it. And we're one of the few people that can give you a better guesstimate of that because we've done it before. But I digress. The what we have seen in the wild pick off python as you'd expect alligator and then we got three different types of snake that we have found our hatchling pythons inside um some of them you wouldn't think uh and let me just back up and say the reason why we find our snakes inside other snakes is because they swallow our snake in the transmitter there's a host of other little mammal predators out there just kind of chew up the snake and spit out the transmitter and we never see what it was but to the ones we do know about uh, a while back, we found our eastern indigo snake, which is an endangered snake. We'll, we'll uh, scarf them down, which was a really good sign. But this previous season with some other researchers, we saw the cottonmouth, the water moccasins um, in multiple areas predate on hatchling python, which we thought was pretty dang interesting because, you know, water moccasins are all over the place. And they're, you know, which brings me back to my point that, you know, a lot of people think only good snake is a dead snake but um you know here's the everglades pushing back frontline defense with alligators and snakes and uh trying to balance the equation back uh against this new invader so we've seen uh indigo snakes we've seen water moccasins and even our black racer snakes have uh eaten python and this season we hope to document a couple more predators and um i got a short list of what i think it could be that's really doing damage to them but i'd love to catch it in the act it's uh it's probably you know something like a raccoon or i think it's a possum to be honest with you i've seen videos of what they can do to snakes online and um i think they they might be a little unsung hero there then lowly possum um for dating on our python so then that just brings me you know being a biologist and uh on the front line of tracking these animals it's pretty cool to uh, you know see an observation firsthand and kind of look over at the crew and say hey now we know something very few people know and uh then we'll you know write it up put it up and out there or share that information like now um and uh get people kind of dialed in and seeing what we're seeing on the front lines with this invasive apex predator this is just incredible so mr jim hopefully you're still there as as a retired biologist what have you got any is anything kind of popping up in your mind you'd like to ask here i I was just fascinated with it and you know i'm 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 more into deer than other things and i'm i'm just here sitting here thinking about how many spawns do they eat and they could be cutting your recruitment off that could be one of the big factors you know you see that in some places like where there's a heavy bear population they predate on bones that could be a big factor in your uh decline in deer if they're they're taking them out, uh, significant numbers of fawns early, you know, in the year, uh, that 
that'll drive a population down. So, Ian, the, the, you, boy, I, I tell you what, it just it sounds like what a the, the work you guys are doing down there is, is just a, an, an uphill battle. But thankfully, we have somebody like you down there doing this. And can you can you point back and say? Hey, here's where these snakes came from. Was there a hurricane event that caused them to get out of some zoo or what, what, what happened? Yeah, I can address that and touch on the origin story for Python. Um, a lot of people just love to fully subscribe that it was Hurricane Andrew that came to, through, I think, in 92 or 93. And I'm here to tell you that's not the complete story. It's probably an all the above, circle D, all the above for this. So the first Burmese python was seen in Everglades National Park back in 79. Between 79 and the early 90s, more pythons were seen in various places. But yes, that big Category 5 hurricane did knock down a whole bunch of reptile breeding facilities and, uh, you know, let loose all kinds of critters from in the southeastern part of the state. Um, Over here in the southwest, from some of the detective work we've done and just you know, really knowing our neighborhood here with these snakes falling around for so damn long. Uh, I think we had a separate introduction that occurred. And let me just back up and say that, you know, people are wondering that just, okay, well, how'd they get here? It, the 100,000 Burmese pythons were brought in since the 70s for the pet trade. This was a pretty popular pet as a little hatchling. They they tend to not be bitey if they've been handled. Reptile people loved them. In fact, I was in the high school in the eastern part of the state and i had one or two when i was in high school so they were kind of a dime a dozen and um but what happens when you have this species of snake that can get to eight to ten feet in the first year if you feed it enough a lot of people um either let them loose or they escaped out of their enclosures and then you combine that with say these you know hurricane type events but all of that points back to these snakes from southeast asia being brought in and um finding their way into the everglades one way or another that's usually how it happens with all these invasive things mm-hmm. plants and animals yeah so ian i've got another question that i think everybody is wondering but just nobody's going to say is so y'all are bringing these snakes out alive and bringing them back to your offices there and i think you're you know you're somehow euthanizing the snake at, the, at that point right uh, uh why not just kill them out there in the, and why go to the i mean it seems like it's kind of dangerous to bring them out well i gotta tell you if you were to put a snake down in the wild they're gonna fling around and still have muscle movement for hours after it's gonna be a bloody mess you wouldn't want to deal with when you tape them up and throw them in a pillowcase type bag they're they're as calm as can be and so you can just transport them. You can sling two or three over a shoulder and onto the next one. So, I mean, just out of matter of convenience there, that's how we do it. And also because we can, you know, dispatch and handle them more efficiently uh, in the lab setting when we do. So that's the simplest explanation. Um, others that are contract hunters deal with them a certain way per their permits and whatnot. And, um, yeah, so just any way you look at it, uh, a quick clean kill humane euthanasia like anything we're hunting is the way to go and um that's how we operate well that that makes and sense I, and I assume you may take them back to the lab and you know take blood samples and other stuff too before you 
you put them down or, you know, do do whatever you need to do, measure them, all that good stuff. Bandy wanted me yeah. to ask what they taste like. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, um, so uh, I did a, we did a study one of the first papers we put out was on uh talk, you know one of the re- one visiting researcher wanted to know are these things super high in mercury because we were getting reports from the eastern everglades that these things were practically radioactive from bioaccumulating heavy metals from all the things they eat being a top predator uh long story short we uh took a lot of tissue samples and moral of the story is we just try to get as much science out of these snakes as possible and there's a lot of things you can address anyway turned out in our corner of the state um, the bigger they got didn't necessarily mean the more heavy metals they had. In fact, it kind of surprised the researcher, um, that the levels were reasonable. I mean, probably more in tuna than they were in the pythons here. So I guess it's a regional thing. It's, and, um, what that usually points to, to my knowledge is, um, if the things that the python are eating had a diet that connected to the aquatic food chain like say they were eating mostly raccoons they were eating fish out in um in an area they tended to accumulate higher as far as what i heard um so to what do they taste like um i got uh somebody that you know turns them into python jerky and uh if you didn't know me and you didn't know that's (laughs) that's what you were eating i think the last thing you would have said it was a python um i had somebody that did some dog training uh um, come down and uh, he said it reminded him of the trout that his dad smoked up in North Dakota when he was a kid when he tried some of it so um, I guess it to that. all palates but um, it ain't half bad but I would say uh, you know down here what we have to choose from in southwest Florida from the good fish we have here getting into some white-tailed deer I mean there's a lot of better things you could be eating than python but uh, <laughs> it ain't half bad yeah, if it tastes like chicken, I'd just rather have chicken. <laughs> yeah. Does anybody uh, have another question? Ron, have you got another question? Yeah, Ian, isn't the same thing kind of going on with the iguanas down there? Do you ever run into those, or are they way south of where you're working? They're on the eastern side of the glades. We have them running over our county here and there. Um, and they're they're more of a pest, and, you know, they can dig, dig holes and eat vegetation. But uh, one of the larger lizards that everyone's got on their radar screen, although – I'm in Collier County and these things are more to the north and on the other side of the glades from us in Broward and Dade, they um, are the Argentine black and white tegu and just search an image online if you want to take a peek at one of those, but big bodied terrestrial lizard, kind of black and white speckled. Um, They got a nasty bite and um, they also are having ecological impact. They're getting into bird nests and gator nests and, uh, that's maybe public enemy number two from the reptile standpoint um, that they're targeting at the moment. You guys have your hands full down there. That environment just breeds that kind of stuff. So, hey, my, my hat's off to you, number one, for handling a snake, number two, from the environmental impact side of it. I know that's hard work. Well, cuz he may he may have a couple of internships if if you're interested in going <laughs> yeah. down there and helping yeah. him out. If if I was physically able, I'd pass. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow! I've looked at a couple of his videos. There's no way. Uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, all of, all of my interns that sign up, they've all lived to tell, and I've told them as much. I said, you know, my job's keeping you safe on this project, but hey, like I said before, man, I'm more. 
I'm more fearful of getting in my car and driving to my field site than I am of jumping on a pile of pythons. And you had asked like what a typical capture would be. And I kind of, you know, went off on the, on the larger one we got, but generally later in the breeding season, when these animals have had um, enough time to, I guess, put out enough scent and get attention, it can be a lot of males around that one female. And that, you know, we call that a breeding aggregation, or I'm sure you come up with some other term for it, but um, that's a rodeo when you kind of get into a pile of them and, you know, there's enough snake there to fill up everybody. You know, we've seen instances where we've had eight pythons in one spot. So it's game on then. Uh, we don't like to lose them. And so um, well, that's a good day for us. And so if we, if we bag over 200 something pounds of snake, it's usually cause for celebration after hours and we'll go down and, have a beer or two and kind of discuss and, you know, kind of mentally check and then go back to the next one, uh, next mission. And, um, you know, checking 40 snakes weekend after week out, it wears on you. So um, it's kind of like, you know, sports analogy is you, you got to, you got to gear yourself up to the playoffs and hit the Super Bowl by the end of the season. And uh, we don't want to flame out early in it and burn out so um my team goes the distance and we kind of pace ourselves and uh i'll be lying if i didn't tell you after the month of march we're whooped and uh just like our male scouts that have been out there chasing these females around i guess we're into the same thing um they take a little breather we reload and um we're kind of in that you know that period at the moment where we're catching up on stuff and uh we'll get you know, we're already recalibrated and um, we're ready for battle for the next breeding season and, you know, pl place our bets on which one of these scouts is going to pay out for us. As I mentioned, Dion was the MVP for this last 2021-2022 season and uh, we'll start placing bets on, you know, the next snakes that are going to take us the distance this upcoming season. Well, as for somebody who's down there, you know, south of Lake Placid, south of Okeechobee, all that stuff. Man, I'm down there every turkey season. We do a wounded veterans hunt down there. It lasts about 10 days. So I'm personally mm -hmm. pulling for you to be the winner of this outcome. I'm telling you, <laughs> if I walk up on one of those things, I'm done. I'm back to Mississippi. I'm over. It's over. I hear you. I hear you. And uh, y'all ask what, you know, you can do or what someone can do. I mean, for this issue, it's uh, spread the awareness, uh, you know, follow the science on it, separate out the, you know, the sensational factor from what's going on there, what we're seeing in the woods. Um, but if you're in our neck of the woods, reach out, connect. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big hunter. Uh, I got my first 10 point buck this last season. So we, right. we keep, we keep, right. we keep, yeah. we thank you. Thank you. We keep uh, the knife sharp in the off season and uh, you know, big fans of the mossy oak. I mean, I just ordered my interns a pair of mossy oak Crocs that he's sporting the other day. If you guys got anything in the used gear barn, send it our way. Cause we'll put it in the play, um, well, you yeah. know, and so, Mm -hmm. It's funny that you say that because I've been sitting here thinking, how can we help these guys? Maybe sending you some clothes or or what, whatever, you, or maybe that we can help raise some money to buy some more of these transmitters that y'all can put in some other snakes. But we'll figure out some kind of way to help you there, Ian. Ten four. Hey, well, just um, just having a good dialogue conversation on this is appreciated. But yeah, it's gonna it's gonna take a village to get after this one, and uh, if you throw us the ammo, we'll use it. And um, 
Yeah. And uh, we, we, you guys are asking good questions and, um, and, you know, well, I'm happy to keep the dialogue going at a future date too, if you'd like, but any y'all that are in these Southern parts and you'd like to connect and see what we're seeing, we're happy to show you because, you know, you, you introduced me as a wildlife biologist, but that's what we do here. But, um, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you we have a up and active good old boy network down here. And I get more of my information through that crew than anywhere else. And if somebody's got something that show me uh, that can better enhance what we're doing, we're all ears. We're not, you know, <laughs> we're not, we're not sitting on our, uh, on our soapbox here too much. We're uh, if somebody's got something to teach us, we'll use it. And that's why we've been pretty effective building a bit of a, a public private partnership here, because as you can imagine these snakes, they could, they could care less about boundaries and borders or, agencies and lands and so we go where they go and so we've needed that flexibility so where i'm going with that is just having that wider network getting after it has helped us out a lot and uh we appreciate any support or anybody listening that track us down and uh help us get after it and we'd appreciate it well ian look this is this is fascinating to us and producer richie uh who produces uh, our television show and this podcast we were, uh, I was talking to him. We'd like to send him down there and film you guys catching some of these big snakes. And I would personally like it if you would spray him down with the pheromones and, you know, and let him get in there with you guys. But that's something I think, Richie, we need to do that. Yeah, I think that, w- that would be cool. Yeah. So, look, uh, Ian, uh, we're going to give out your web address and all that uh, so that folks can get in touch with you. If they take a vacation to South Florida, they need to come by and see the Conservancy. Uh, it's just an interesting place. But before we let you go, when we have a guest, we like to ask them a trivia question. And Uh-oh. then and then, uh, and then the trivia question, if you get it right, one of our listeners who's left us a review wins a prize. So it's, uh, you know, not to put any pressure on you, but uh, that's kind of what it is. And so we've got Mac over here that will ask you. He's going to tell you what the prize is and what you're, uh, who you're playing for here. Hey, Ian. No pressure. Uh, no pressure. So you're playing for a man named Dave Altry, and his prize is a Stanley travel mug in country DNA, Mossy Oak country DNA. So... <clears throat> All that Stanley stuff is so cool. Yeah, we'll send you one for sure. Uh, but we'll send you one for sure, Ian. All right. Well, no. Pr- I thought you were going to say it was like a razor side by side or something. Pressure's down now, but yeah. let's let's go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, as kids, there was a poem. A lot of us were taught to identify a coral snake. What is that poem? Oh man, you're asking a snake guy. You're lobbing this one easy. <laughs> That's all right. That if uh, red touch yellow will kill a fellow. It's got to yep, be some yep, yep. some version of that. He got it, it right. He, he sure did. And so red touch yellow kill a fella. And then there's another line to it, Dudley. Can you tell us what that one is? Uh, something red touch black. Fr- your uh, friend of something friend of Jack. Red, uh, that, that is exactly right. Ian. Yeah, you are awesome, man. Well, I, you know, I figured you would know this one for sure. But yeah, I was, was hoping that was. That was a softball right there. That was a softball. Uh, Cuz, did you know that one? I did know that one. Absolutely. Cuz goes by a different one. It's like, if it's a snake, I'm not going to go anywhere near it. Yeah, it can be a fan fan belt or a piece of garden (laughs) hose or any of that stuff. 
Well, so, so I was hoping – I knew – I, I kind of figured you would know this one, Ian, but I was hoping some of our listeners might learn something here on the episode there. And there's uh, – so there's the coral snake, but there's also Dudley. What's the snake that's, that is safe for uh, There's a scarlet snake, and I think there's a scarlet king snake. I, I do Very not good. know the genus and species, but – uh, yeah, I wish I had a bell. I'd hit that ding too. That was that was excellent. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, there we go. Well, Ian, uh, look, ha- tell us the website. Tell us your Instagram handle. What, what, how do fi- folks need to follow the Conservancy? Well, you can track us down at conservancy.org, C-O-N-S-E-R-V-A-N-C-Y.org. And if you're in this neck of the woods, they just put together a pretty neat invasive species gallery here. Um, it's got a uh, monster python skin up the wall on the wall you got to see it to believe it and um we've also got some uh snakes behind glass that are hand raised the burmese pythons you can see them and you can see some other invasive animals so we're down here in naples so take a tour right next to the naples zoo which is also a supporter of our project and uh just a shout out to the people that have helped us get this far a lot of private philanthropy uh, a lot of generous people over here, good friends of mine, the Shotwells, good hunters and conservation-minded folks uh, have moved us forward. And so, yeah, so if this is of interest to you, um, we do the tracking, but track us down and um, kind of, you know, connect and uh, anything y'all can do to help us move this forward be appreciated. Oh, that, that sounds good, Ian. So, look, I'm going to give you the option. We're get, we're going to talk to uh, for a few minutes to uh, Jim Leip, and he's, he was – bitten by water moxin and he's going to tell us what happened if you want to stay on and listen you're more than welcome and if you do please chime in if you have a question but we certainly appreciate you being a guest here today so much Ian. thank you that was great that was awesome learned a lot hey well i right back at you i appreciate you guys i'm gonna tap out here but i i felt like i was hanging out with some uh good hunting buddies today so uh i'd love to keep the dialogue up with y'all so um thanks for asking some good questions and the general interest and I'm sure we'll be talking with you all sometime sooner than later. Well, stay in touch, and if, if you ever head north and west, give us a ring, and uh, we'll cook you a meal. Hang out. Will do. Sounds great. Well, thank you, fellas, and uh, good luck out your way. All right. Thank Thanks, you, Ian. Well, Jim, I hope you're still there. That, he, that was amazing. Fascinating. Fascinating. Good work. Uh, wishing all the success in the world. So, uh Thank goodness Mississippi doesn't have this kind of a problem. We got every, we got everything else, though. I can promise you yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is the worst place in the country to live if you don't like poisonous snakes or snakes but, in yeah. general. My opinion. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? You're you're probably right. And then we and and Jim's going to tell us about one of his experiences. Just uh, two nights ago, I was at the Mississippi State Veterinary Hospital at, at midnight with a, a dog that had an issue. But the late the vet there, I just a- happened to ask. I said, y'all, how many snake bites do y'all get? And she said, five or six a week. Yeah. Dogs brought in there that are yeah. bitten by snakes. Yeah, a lot yeah. going to other vets, too. So yeah. Just, yeah. Man, it's crazy, especially yeah. in this drought, man. If you're standing anywhere near water, you better be watching. So, yeah. Jim, tell us about your uh, – what happened with you and this snake now? Well, and, and you knew – you followed my dad around when he was an old guy. Can you imagine following that man around when he was a young guy and I was young? So, you know, from a very early age, I, I was out in the woods long before I even thought about being a biologist. But that was what, you know, prompted me to go into wildlife. 
and uh, I had zero fear of snakes. But spiders are a different story. I want nothing to do with those. And, you know, at an early age, I started catching snakes, and I never had an issue with them. Uh, and I'd catch, I've caught all the poisonous or venomous, venomous snakes that live around these parts, you know, timber rattlers, cottonmouth, copperhead. Never seen a coral snake. So, but before I go any further, your listener, there are going to be quite a few of your listeners say, well, that guy must be brain damaged. That's stupid. I know it. And I tell this to people so they won't be stupid like I was. I had handled hundreds and hundreds of snakes and uh, venomous snakes and never had an issue. And you get kind of lackadaisical. So back in 2004, I had a friend that was a doctor. His name was Tom Fork. He worked at UMC at that time. And he, you know, he asked me, he said, Jim, you know, one of the problems we get with cottonmouth is the infections. He said, I would very much like to have a cottonmouth that I could put in a cage and, and, you know, see what kind of bacteria is in there. So it was for a good reason. And then he said, and I want a really big one. So I was coming home from karate one night. And I got about four miles from my house. And there in the road was a huge cottonmouth. And so I stopped and I got out and I said, the snake is too big to catch. I had nothing. And I said, the snake is too big to catch. So when you were talking about the Stanley Thermoswallago, well, guess what? I had one of those big green Stanley coffee thermoses in my vehicle. Of course. And I looked at that, and that's when I said to myself, well, you know what? I can probably smush his head down with that thing and grab him, and then I'll just drive down the road with him out the window. (laughs) And so I get out. And I had the thermos in my right hand, and the snakes coiled up, and I got him to kind of stretch out, and I smushed his head down with that. I reached down with my right hand and grabbed it. And before I picked the thermos up, I said, I hope I grab him close enough behind the head, they won't turn around and bite. And I removed the thermos, and guess what? He only one fanged me, but he got me really good with that one fang right in that fleshy part between your thumb and your index finger. And so I'm here to tell you, if a snake ever bites you, a venomous snake, you don't have to sit around for, you know, five or ten minutes wondering if you've been envenomated. It will be immediate. And so now... For all of those who've never been bitten by a venomous snake, the first pain is a burning sensation. And it's, it would be like pouring a quart of gasoline on your hand and setting it on fire. Mm. It hurts. So I did kill the snake. I ran over him and spun off on him. But I was four <laughs> miles from my I called my wife, who 
uh, I told her, I said, I had been bitten by a cottonmouth, and I'm be home in just a minute. And she said, how did you get bit by a cottonmouth? You were at karate. And I said, don't worry about it. I'm on my way home. When I got home, I could not pull my vehicle in my driveway. I just left it in the street and went in and got her. And I said, let's go. And we went to Baptist Hospital. So about 15 or 20 minutes after I'd been bitten, it wasn't just the burning pain. Then there was a pain like somebody had a sledgehammer beating my, my hand. And I started sweating. I got nauseous. I got to the hospital, and I was throwing up. I was as sick as I could be. And, you know, they had the, they, they, they gave me some pain meds, and they were arguing over where to, whether or not to give me the antivenom. And I just, I just told them, I said, give it to me, please. And so they did. So the people that pick up snakes, and I, I was one of them, and I'll, I'll still do it now, but I'll do it, you know, with the proper equipment if I have to. Uh, if I had been somewhere, say, in the back 40, I don't know that I could have made it home. I don't know that I could have driven home. Uh, now, it was a very big snake, and he socked me with a lot of venom, but I don't think I could have driven home. I don't know what would have happened. Well, it sounds and, like it only got you with a half load, if, if yeah. only one fang got you. It could have been and way so, worse. Another thing that ought to ring in somebody's mind before they pick up a venomous snake, I got 20 vials of anti-venom. Those, that one vial was $2,000. Oh, my goodness. I was in uh, the cardiac intensive care unit for about three or four days. And my arm was larger than my, my thigh, my right arm, all the way up. I could barely move it. And, you know... Uh, it was numb. I had a lot of numb numbness in my left arm. And uh, after about a week, all of a sudden, it just went poof, and it was back down to normal. But it took about a year for me to get all the feeling back in my hand. And uh, so, you know, it was a very, very bad experience. Uh, it's one of the one of the things in life. You know, y'all, so I wasn't as bad as I thought. This is a whole lot worse than anything you you would think it would be like. It was horrible. Uh, so I just, you know, the best advice I've ever heard was uh, if you see a snake, just back up and walk away. <laughs> That's the best thing to do yes. is not to mess with it. But it was a horrible experience. Honestly, and then about three years ago, I was out scouting in September for uh, checking white oak trees for acres for both seasons, and I have on my short pants, my tennis shoes, and I'm I'm looking up in the white oak tree with my binoculars, and I'm walking backwards, 
and I stepped on something, and it was like, oh, I know what that seal is. And it was a five-foot timber rattler. Oh. Right. But he didn't, he didn't try to bite me. He just slithered on off after I jumped 20 feet. So, you know, I don't I don't really pick up snakes anymore. I had to catch a, a copperhead in the, in the garage. And I don't have any vendetta against them. I don't. I don't kill them. Uh, I didn't kill that rattlesnake, and I didn't kill the copperhead that was in my garage. I just took it off and let it go. But I, I don't, I don't pick them up unless I just absolutely have the reason I have to. I can't blame you. Can't, so can't blame him for what? <laughs> <laughs> not picking it up or not killing it. <laughs> Both. So yeah. if this was in 2004 and you got $40,000 worth of antivitum, in 2022, what would that cost? Has anybody got any idea? And, and would it be covered through your insurance? I mean, that could wreck you financially. It's like a that third DUI. Yeah. You could be done with yeah. over a snake bite. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank goodness my insurance company paid for it. But, I, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they – they had a clause in there. If you're stupid enough to pick up a snake and it bites, you own your own. Yeah. 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 I would, if I'd have been running that insurance, I'd have dropped you right after that yeah. for sure. Well, I mean, you know, we, we talked to uh, my cousin, Tyler Hardy. He, he was bit by a copperhead. I, I want to say that bill was around 200. Yeah. 200 grand. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, that Dana Sanders, uh, I think he's on our camo pro staff. He was bit by a rattlesnake five or six years ago. And uh, that was a very hefty bill as well. So the lady, yeah. uh, the lady at the vet the other night said that for a dog, it's $700 a vial. And then it depends on how large the dog is, yeah. how many vials they give them. Well, Jim, yeah. we're glad you made it through that, brother. Because <laughs> you're, you know. I Game, game and fish officers are, are, are they're way up high on our hero list. They certainly are mine. We're glad you pulled through that. This is cuz, so God bless you. I'm glad you're still around. I'm certainly glad you ain't picking up snakes no more. <laughs> uh, I, I'll say, you know, we live in the country and we so, have snakes. So do I. I, I have a, I'm not afraid. I'm not scared of them. I just have a very healthy respect for them. Yeah. And uh, That's a good do have some nice snake boots now. Yeah. <laughs> well, got, Vandy, have you got any? You got a question for Jim before we let him off? So, uh, Mac, you did some fact checking real quick. What'd you come up with? It's about thirty-two hundred dollars for one vial, and if you if you get struck by a smaller rattlesnake, you'll take up to four to six vials. So I've also yeah. heard that they can only give that antivenom to you one time in your life. Is that true, Jim? I, I don't know. I hope I never have to take it again. <laughs> you don't well, want to find that. Well, I, I met, that may be some kind of a urban legend. There. I've, <laughs> I've always just looked down when I walk. I mean, even when I worked with your dad, I wore tennis shoes, and I was walking up and down beaver dams. And uh, But I just was very careful about where I stepped. But your scenario, like you were using your binocs, looking up for acorns in the tree, I do that kind of stuff all the time, and, and during turkey season, I'm walking in ankle-to-knee-high vegetation and not really looking down, and I've got to get some chaps or some boots. I've, I've just always been a hiking boot 
shoe kind of guy. Yeah, uh, I don't have snake boots. I can't break them in, if you can believe that. But I can tell you what, if one bites me, that's going to be the slickest, well, most hidden. Cool. <laughs> there ain't no way I ain't going to see it. That's just – and I certainly ain't going to be picking one up. So if you see me get snake bit, y'all need to take that one and put him in the museum because he was smart. He was a good one. Yeah, yeah, he was a good one. But we always recap. What what have we learned? I I, there's got to be something here. Stay, that we can... stay out of Southwest Florida, and don't yeah. pick up don't pick up a cotton mouth with your Stanley thermos. That's the two <laughs> things that ring clear to me. <laughs> it does stand out more than some of the other things. Yeah. Oh, Dudley, did you learn anything? No, I just learned again. We we need to have a healthy respect for them. And uh, well, the you know what's going on down there in South Florida is it's kind of scary. Uh, that that something in maybe twenty or thirty years could have such an impact on the environment like that, and I, I'm pretty sure I heard him say that one can be ten feet long in a course of a year. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. that's, that's, I mean, just opening people's eyes to invasive species of, I mean, animals and plants. You know, yes, turning yeah. turning a pet loose does have consequences for the environment. So, yeah. Yeah, it does. All right, Mr. Jim. So, uh, look, uh, what, what are you doing these days? Is there any reason, uh, any, anything you want to promote or anybody you want to say hello to? No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm retired, but I'm, I'm, I do mainly here in Turkey management. And uh, for I have about 45 clients. And, uh, you know, I do some work for the, USDA and RCS uh, writing wildlife plans for their people on uh, their farm program, and uh, you know that just uh, I'm just kind of enjoy doing that kind of stuff. Well, good, uh, good. Sounds like you uh, sounds like you're enjoying. Re- it doesn't sound like you're retired at all. Sounds like you got a lot going on. But we appreciate you joining us here today, and thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. And yeah. Jim, I I want to stay in touch with you. Let's let's uh, let's chat uh, in a week or two. I do want to try to get you a couple of those cool photos of your dad. I really appreciate that. Yep, he was a great man. So he was, he was a good father. Well, good. Well, thank you so much, Mac. If you'll remind me, we'll send him a Stanley thermos as well. So, Jim, thank you again. Now, don't be catching no snakes so with that thermos. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Right. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. I just, uh, you know, listen to them talk about how I ain't going to sleep a wink tonight. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it'll be on my mind. And I, you, you know how your mind gets to race at night? I'll be sitting there staring at the ceiling at 2 a.m. Yeah. It's crazy. So a 17 or 18-foot Burmese python, that would be as I mean, this room's about 20 feet. Bobby, just think about that. You know, with all your taxidermy, your love for all the taxidermy around here, I mean, you could have a Burmese python. Nah, well, you know, no, alligator hunting has gotten cool, Street so maybe, maybe this will uh, evolve into a Burmese python season. Well, they have a hunt. They have a, the Florida Game and Fish has a, I mean, I think there's a couple of weeks down there, and they have like a rodeo. I bet that is a rodeo. If, if you were to go down there and kill one, would you name it like you do, do all your deer and stuff? Uh, no. No, I, I'm not going to have anything to do with a Burmese pipe. I'm mean, so. just asking. I mean, you're, you're a sportsman. I just figured you might want to. Yep. So, Randy, uh, before we go, tell folks this. Uh, how can they find out about these uh, Uncle Ray's potato chips? Uh, they should be on the shelves in another 
month or two. And that's going to be and, convenience stores, right? Yeah, any convenience store that um, carries Uncle Ray's. Convenience stores, grocery stores. Yep, they're they're delicious, as you can Dudley, you put on two or three pounds just in the last couple of weeks, right? Yeah, and I've taken a couple bags home and letting all my, my field testers at home try them out. Uh, <laughs> They're, they're all good. Uh, I like the barbecue and the all-dressed. Uh, my daughter, Belmont, she likes the, the jalapeno cheddar the most. But that all-dressed, if you like vinegar and salt, it's like a vinegar and salt, but the salt is like a seasoned salt. It's fantastic. Hmm. Well, Cuz, we sure appreciate you sitting in here and joining us. I, I enjoyed listening to it. I, you know, I, I can talk to them. You know, I can talk about snakes. Uh, I don't like to look at them on TV. Uh, the internet, my phone, if I come across a picture, I'm out of there. But it's just, that's the way it is. But uh, I enjoyed coming down here sitting in Toxie's chair. He's got to be real busy, or he wouldn't have missed this one. I think he's planting some soybeans somewhere. Well, there you go. So, yep. So, well, thank you. And this has been great. Mike, have you got anything before we get out of here? You're good. Pro- producer Richie, what about you over there? All right, I guess that's it. So, Dudley, why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, somebody. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.